So our scripture reading for today is in Colossians 3, uh, 14 through 21. Um, also, too, if you're new to the well, we have uh, Bibles um, in our pews, and those are our gift to you if you don't have a Bible. Um, and you can also follow along that way if you don't want to lead, um, read from the slides. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Thanks, Andy. Man, I'm so grateful for Grant and Megan and their investment. And, and uh, all of you who have served the kids downstairs, and it's, it, it's a huge impact on the body. Just really grateful for you. Um, Hey, before we jump into the sermon and offend everyone in the room, uh, let's, let's talk about the summer. Uh, we, we're going to do one, uh, sermon, uh, one, one worship service on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Uh, that'll go from uh, June 11th, that's in a couple weeks, to August 20th. Uh, the reason we do that is a couple reasons. Uh, one, a lot of folks travel in the summer, and so when uh, new people come into the area, and a lot of people move also to the area in the summer, uh, this will allow them to meet a lot more of our core uh, people as we worship together uh, at 10 a.m., everyone together. That's one reason. The second is uh, we like to give our volunteers just a break. Uh, a lot of folks are serving uh, 80-some kids on a Sunday morning, both first and then second service. This allows a nice break uh, for them. And then the third reason is it allows our staff to plan for the fall effectively uh, because on August 27th, we'll go right back to two services, Okay. Uh, with that announcement, uh, let me jump in. I will pray for us again. Uh, Father, we so deeply desire our core relationships to flourish. There's nothing more core than our families. If we're married, our husbands and wives and our children. And so we're so thankful, we're so grateful that you have laid out the way towards flourishing in response to who your son is and what he's done, that it doesn't just stay up in the sky, pie in the sky kind of stuff, but that the gospel and the good news of Jesus transforms our everyday relationships, our Monday mornings through the rest of our week as we serve and love and care for each other as you've outlined us or for us on how to do. So God, would you open our minds and our hearts this morning to your scriptures that we would be transformed and we would see just a, we would see the flourishing in our families that we long for. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're in the letter of uh, the book of Colossians where Paul is writing to this church in Colossae, this brand new church. And, and in chapters 1 and 2 where we've been, we, we have seen, man, all these uh, massive ideas, these doctrines and these majestic truths about who Christ is. And in this ethereal kind of way, this wow, up in the sky, kind of pie in the sky kind of stuff that's true, we now see uh, the ethereal has come to earth in the nuts and bolts of how to live out our lives in relationship with each other. 
uh, the things we talk about and we worship and we sing about on Sundays now are translated into our Monday mornings when life gets rough and, and your wife is mad at you or you're single or you want this child or whatever it might be. And we say, how do I live in flourishing now today? Uh, God does not want us to be searching for in the dark the ways to do this, so he provides the guidance very clearly in this passage in four commands. Uh, this has come off the back of chapter 3 where we've seen this idea of, of how to live as the, uh, the people of God in relationship with each other in the church. We, we've read things like, above all else, verse 14 in chapter 3, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony as we care for one another. We've read things like in verses 16 and 17, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly as we would teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It sounds like a huge party, right? Whatever we do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's like, man, that's amazing. We want to live these things out. And now Paul's going to bring these down into our family and get real concrete, real tangible, real nuts and bolts. And he's going to drop this cultural bomb right in the middle of it. They're going to be shocked when they hear this word. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That's the bomb that would have dropped in their first century context. Oh my gosh, are you serious? You want husbands to love our wives like this and not be harsh with them? In this patriotic... Uh, 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 patristic, uh, sorry, uh, uh, husband, kind of uh, father-dominated culture. He's saying, you want me to love like this? That doesn't make sense. He says, yes. Now, there's a different bomb for us. You probably uh, heard it as we read it. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's the bomb that hits us. And we're going to talk these through. What, what, what does this mean? What, what is the picture that God is painting? See, the, the cultural context where the husband has this unhindered, unchecked authority. He can kind of boot his wife out, right? He can uh, treat his wife or his kids poorly. And sometimes they're using that power for good. And sometimes they're using that power for really evil things. In that kind of setting, Paul's going to step in in that cultural context and give these commands. Uh, and it's also important to know the biblical context, right? These are four kind of boom, boom, boom commands. But in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul is going to kind of go through all the same relationships, and he's going to paint a much broader picture with much more details. Ephesians chapter 5, you can listen along with me, or you can turn there. He's doing the same thing. He's talking to the church and all relationships at large. And then he ends this part of that letter in verse 21 of chapter 5 in Ephesians. He says, Everyone submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. Each one of us submit one to another, come under each other out of reverence for Christ. And then he's going to talk about marriage, and he's going to say, uh, wives, do this, and, and husbands, do that. And he's going to paint this amazing picture of submitting one to another, uh, the same kind of uh, self-giving for the flourishing of the other. And he's going to paint in this picture where he says, you know what this is all about? This is about painting a picture of who our God is, imaging him. 
Our God, who is very diverse, Father, Son, and Spirit, three diverse people with different roles carrying out their uh, personhood differently, all as one God, uh, all equal. The, the, the Son is no less than the Father. The Father is no less than the Spirit. All equal, but functioning in different roles. And actually, uh, what's so amazing is the Son then goes and hangs on a cross. He gives his life away because the three persons of God, uh, all equal, all in different roles, they give themselves away for each other over and over. They're all about other glorying, giving themselves up. So uh, Paul is going to end this passage about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 by saying, I'm talking about Christ in the church. I want you in your marriages to picture, to image who our God is. Diverse and unified, equal in persons, different though. And I want you to picture, image the gospel. You image your God and you image the gospel in the way you relate to each other in marriage. So that's the cultural context and that's a bit of the biblical context. Uh, we've preached on this a couple different times. You can go back to Ephesians or 1 Peter and those vestiges and get more on those things. This is a high calling to image our God, and to image the good news of what Jesus has done in our marriages. And that is why I'm so grateful that God has given me Courtney in this task. So uh, Courtney's going to preach this passage along with me. So let's clap her up. Uh, that's one thing I want you to do. The second is get out your pens uh, because she's amazing. Her teaching is wonderful. And we've lived a lot of life with six kids, a couple different states, a few different houses, a ton of fights, a lot of mistakes. We're very fiery. And so uh, in all that midst, there's a lot to learn from, from everything we've done wrong as well as in the scriptures. So uh, we're going to teach you out of these things. And uh, we'll go uh, wives and husbands, then talk about the practicals of that, what that looks like in our marriage. Then we'll do kids and parents and talk about the practicals of that. So one more time, can we clap up Courtney as she brings the scriptures here? Well, it's an honor to be here. It's a privilege. I'm glad to be here. Uh, we're going to start in verse 18. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And so, like Matt said, it would have been radical for them to hear any of these in their first century context, but that wives are actually talked to was radical, right? Wives were, women were second-class citizens in the first century, right? They were almost seen as property of their husbands. So the fact that Paul addresses them and talks to them speaks to their value and how they're equal. Um, this is a really short, simple command with this descriptive qualifying phrase. And before we unpack it in that worm that I feel like is most often misinterpreted, this idea of what submission looks like, before I get to it, I need to start with what it is not. Anytime I teach this passage, I always start here. Because the Bible is very clear, and I'm committed to being very clear, that there is no command anywhere in Scripture that supports abuse of any kind. The Bible does not give men permission or license to be domineering, manipulative, abusive, or oppressive. And so if you are here today or you know someone who's in that type of situation, please talk to someone. Tell your community group leader, come find me or Matt or an elder, that that is not okay. It breaks our heart and it breaks the heart of God. So please tell someone. Okay, so what does this word submit mean? Um, I spoke about this back when we did First Peter, so I'm not going to belabor the point. But in the Greek, it's two Greek words put together. So the word hupatasso, the word hupo means to come under. And then the word tasso means to arrange in an orderly manner. So it was most often used as a military term, hupatasso, to come under in an orderly manner. 
And this was to describe a soldier who would come under his superior officer. So this was not a statement of worth or of value. They were all equal, but it was just a way to maintain order. But this is not speaking about a military situation, right? This is in the home. So this is a non-military use of the word hupatasso. So what does that mean? The definition in the non-military term is a voluntary attitude of coming under, cooperating with, and carrying a burden for another. So it's a voluntary choice that a woman would want to come under and cooperate with and carry a burden for her husband. And so this refers to or highlights what God um, says in Genesis 2, 18, when he describes when he made Eve, the first wife, the first woman, um, scripture always interprets scripture, right? So in Genesis 2, it says God creates Eve and says that he will make a helper suitable for him. So that word helper is also misunderstood, right? It almost just seemed like we're weaker somehow, we're a helper. But the word helper in that context actually is referring to the stronger one, right? When um, it's used in ancient biblical writing, when there's two um, armies that are going to war with each other, if one reaches out to a king for help to come in and help us, like send your army with us, that king is called the helper, right? So he's the stronger one. He's coming in to rescue or come alongside. God is referred to as our helper. The Holy Spirit in scripture is referred to as our helper. So in no way is this term referring to women as a call to be weak or to be passive. Um, the way I have defined it is it's a voluntary leveraging of all that I am, my strengths and my skills and abilities, so that my husband would flourish for the good of my husband, that I would leverage all that I have for the good of my husband, to support him, to love him in a cooperative way, that I would push him and point him to Jesus, putting his needs before my own. Um, and so my journey with this um, has been complicated and confusing, I would say. Um, we have distorted and twisted and misunderstood this concept in both the world and the church. So I was raised in a really conservative, traditional, typical 1950s kind of household. And so my understanding of submission was wives, it's like a legalistic thing. So there's certain things women can do and women can't do. Um, and you just need to like allow your husband to make all the decisions. That was sort of my upbringing. But then I was also discipled in the world as well. I went to a public high school, went to a secular university, and so I was taught to be a strong, assertive woman, to uh, demand my rights and to push my way to the top and to not let anyone oppress me, especially a man. And so I had both feet, I had a foot in both worlds, right? So it was very confusing for me to try to make sense of what biblical womanhood and what it looks like to be a wife in marriage. And I'm very thankful that I had a few wonderful, gospel-centered, strong women in my life who mentored me and showed me what it looked like to leverage all that I have for the good of my husband. And they didn't sit down and teach it to me, they just lived it out. And so I got to see what that looks like and how powerful and beautiful it is for me to want to, you know, put my husband before myself. But what Vicki and Kathleen and Wendy taught me was that it's not a natural thing. It doesn't just come naturally to me. It's not my default attitude or disposition that naturally I'm a sinner, right? Genesis 3.16, when the fall happened back in the garden, what God said, the result and the consequence of sin, what he said to the woman, it says, I will make your pains in childbirth very severe. With labor, you will give birth to your children. 
Yes, I've had six children, very painful, that is true. And then it says, and your desire will be for your husband. Part of the result of our sinful and broken world is my inclination and my default is that I wanna do my own thing. I wanna be independent. My natural desire is not to serve and support my husband. I often have sought to seek to control him, to blame him, to judge him, to critique him, to gossip about him or ignore him or just coexist together. And so people in my life, they've taught me this passage. They have said, let's back up a little bit. We need to remember what Colossians 3, 3 says, and it's one of my favorite verses. It says that my life is hidden with Christ that I need to start there. My identity is in him. I have been forgiven, redeemed, transformed, and so now I am in him. He, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so as I need to put off the old clothes, what comes naturally to me, I need to put on gospel clothes, right? Chad preached about this last week, that I would put on love, compassion, kindness, forgiveness, bearing with one another, verses five to 14. But today, then we also see that some of those gospel clothes look like submitting to my own husband. And it's not because he's earned it or he deserves it. It's because it's fitting in the Lord. That's why. That's why we do it. It's because everything I do is because my allegiance and devotion to Christ. That it honors God. It brings glory to God. And it is. It's life-giving to me and to my marriage but God designed marriage to look like this. It's not natural, but it's powerful and beautiful that I would leverage all that I am for the flourishing of my husband. That's good. That's good. Well, let's get on to the husbands here. And, you know, it's so funny as we were prepping for this, all we did was fight this week. <laughs> you it was tend to live what you're teaching, right? Yeah, so. <laughs> that's right. It's the middle of the week, and, and it's like, oh, this huge fight with some deep stuff uh, emerged, and then we got through it, and I was like, oh, yeah, man, we're doing good. We are ready to preach it on Sunday, and then last night, Court comes home, and she's like, hey, can you grab the dishes in the, in the sink? And I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm like, really why did well. I say that? Because <laughs> I'm a jerk, and I'm selfish as well, which is why I need this command from the scriptures, uh, husbands, what? Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Uh, we'll do the same thing that Courtney did in the passage to wives. Let's define some of these words. Love your wives. Uh, what is love? Love is unmerited or unearned self-sacrifice. Uh, it's a decision to say, I'm going to give myself away for your flourishing. Remember the biblical context of this idea of marriage out of uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25, we see uh, this command uh, it kind of expounded on a little bit to husbands. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love your wife in the same way that Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her, dying on her behalf, giving his whole life on the cross that she would flourish. Love is self-sacrifice. Love is unearned, too. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this. Uh, speaking of God and how he loves us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he gave his son as a sacrifice for us. Uh, there it is, unmerited, undeserved love where God pours out all of his resources for our good, even to the point of death on a cross. Uh, Paul says, love your wives the same way that Christ loved the church to death on a cross. 
When we read, maybe you've heard it at a wedding, 1 Corinthians 13, this definition of love. Well, what is it? It's self-sacrifice. It's proactive. It's unearned, giving away of myself for you. It's love is patient. When I don't want to be patient, when I want for me, well, I, I choose to be patient towards, well, I wish that were true, <laughs> towards my life. When I want to be mean, be kind. Love is kind. It's patient. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It says you first before me. So in the way that wives are leveraging, asking themselves every day, how will I leverage my strength for the good of my husband as I submit to him? Husbands are now asking as they say to love their wives, how will I die for the good and the flourishing of my husband? Do you see that pattern, how that images then our great God who's loved us like this in Christ and how that um, relationship images the good news of the gospel and the way he has loved us like this in Christ? I, I am to wake up every day and say, how do I die that you would flourish? And Courtney is to wake up every day and say, how would I leverage my skills and my strength that you would flourish? It's a beautiful picture. It's a picture of dying to self for the good of the other. Don't be harsh with your wives. There's lots of ways to be harsh. Now, you can be harsh in a loud kind of way, like I am often with my words or my actions or physicality, right? You can be harsh in that way, or you can be harsh in a quiet kind of way and withdrawing and being critical with the things you slip in as comments or the way you withdraw and hold coldness towards your spouse. No, don't do those things. Love instead an unmerited, unearned, self-sacrificial movement of death for the good of the other. I, I was doing a wedding in Dallas. Uh, you know, we were there for seven years. We moved uh, from our home in Maryland to Dallas. And, and, you know, you take a wedding here in Maryland, you amp it up like 8,000 times. That's a wedding in Dallas. You know, you got, you got big hair. You got big churches. You got big hats. I mean, it's Dallas, you know. And so I'm in this big cathedral, and we're doing the, uh, the dress rehearsal the day before. And, you, you know, they had like... 14 bridesmaids lined up and 14 groomsmen and I had done the premarital for this couple and, and so we talked about day in and day out for months marriage is death dying that the other would flourish and so I had this great idea heading into this wedding I was going to give a funeral message at the wedding yeah good idea and so I said that to the best friend of the groom I said hey this is the night before the wedding I said I planned my message. I'm going to give a funeral message tomorrow. He goes, Matt, don't do that. So I got up there on that Saturday morning, and I gave that funeral message. <laughs> I said, Mac, that's his name, you're here to die today. Emily, you are here to die today. And we talked through this idea of marriage is a beautiful death where the husband keeps saying, how will I die that you flourish? And the wife keeps saying, how will I leverage all of myself that you would flourish? And it's like a giant oak tree as you head into the fall. And it's this massive tree with the leaves. They were all green. But then they're firing in oranges and reds as the leaves die. And the beauty is almost breathtaking. As the husband and the wife say, I want to die that you would flourish. Well, let's talk about what does this look like in our marriage just practically? What, what, what does this look like for Courtney and I? Uh, let's remind ourselves first of the principles. Uh, the principles were that marriage is to image God and the gospel and the way that we live towards each other. Uh, the second principle is a husband is to die every day for the flourishing of his wife. And a, was, uh, a wife is to leverage all of her strengths and skill for the good of a husband. 
And that we do this in Christ. It's not forced or coerced, but we choose to do this in allegiance and in the strength of Jesus. And so some practicals. What does this look like for us? So the first is decisions, right, in our home. How do we make decisions? Well, Corey and I, we argue a lot. I mean, that's just legitimate. She, she's fiery, I'm fiery. We, we're arguers, right? So we argue it through, but here's what we try and do in a healthy way. We place the decision in front of us and say, what's best in unity for our family in that decision? Not how will we compromise, give and take, pull, push and pull, but what's best for us in that decision together, right? So but if it's- Sometimes it's hard to, like sometimes you both have the way you feel like that should be handled. I feel like a sometimes. lot. Sometimes. Sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> um, I feel like most often with kids making decisions about discipline or how to, you know, raise our kids or finances is where this comes up a lot, right? I don't know about your marriage. But so sometimes it is hard. You're at a disagreement. What do you do? And I think sometimes as wives, we just think, well, we should just give in to our husband, let them do whatever they think is best. And that is not what this is saying. You have to work it out. You have to communicate and talk. And if you both want to see the other one flourish and thrive, you seek the Lord together in it. So keep pursuing it. Keep hearing each other out. And Seeking unity, yeah, listening, seeking always unity. asking yourself, how might I die that she would flourish and vice versa, that our family together would flourish. And that takes time. It's messy and it's ugly. That's decisions. Uh, within tasks, uh, here's what generally happens within tasks. Uh, one of us will own the task, right, and then the other will help, you know. So for bills, Courtney did the bills for the longest of time, and then recently I've taken over the bills. I'm doing the bills, and then, but occasionally she'll do bills. I'll do bills. We'll help each other in the process, but generally that's how we go about tasks in this kind of way. Uh, the other is spiritual life, in this area of spiritual life. Well, we, we own that together. We want to disciple the family together. We want to you know, help each other grow in our spiritual lives together. Uh, but reality is, Courtney takes the bulk of that. Uh, when a holiday or a season is coming, she's normally the one doing all the planning to say, how are we going to disciple our kids and our family in this season? What book are we going to read? How is that going to look like? Uh, and, and at family meals, she often brings a question, but sometimes I'll bring a question or a little psalm to read or talk about or that kind of thing. And normally it's a giant mess. Just being honest for both of us. Uh, the last is job, right? Uh, in different seasons, in different ways, this has worked out differently for us when it comes to career inside and outside of the home. Uh, so uh, heading into seminary, both of us were working outside of the home. Then we had this stint where for most of the time, I was not working outside of the home. I was doing a bulk of studying where Courtney was working outside of the home. And then for a, a big chunk of our season, Courtney's been primarily at home, though doing some other jobs outside of the home. And now we're entering a season where she's saying, hey, I think I want to work more outside of the home. And we're figuring that out together. So different seasons, different callings, different gift sets of how God puts us together that we would function in a way that we would die for the good of the other and flourish in our family together. Um, let me talk a little bit, or anything on the practicals you want to say of any of those before I talk a little bit about my role? No, go for it. Okay. So for within my role, uh, how I see this is when it comes to headship and loving like Jesus has loved the church, uh, I, I, I place on myself the ultimate responsibility for the flourishing of our family, and I think that's a biblical concept. Uh, when Adam and Eve sin and fall, uh, God comes to Adam and says to Adam, what have you done, Adam? And I think that's uh, fitting for us in the family. If, if our family is not flourishing, I have to take ultimate responsibility for that. Now look, does Courtney take the responsibility for our flourishing and me as well? Yes, but ultimately I hold myself accountable before the Lord and according to the scriptures, I am responsible and figuring out how then will we flourish and dying that we would flourish. Uh, the second is uh, I, I want to go first and always. 
I want to go first and always. I want to be the first to approach Courtney to say, uh, would you forgive me? This is what I've done wrong. Uh, this is where I need to own our sin or brokenness. This is, I want to go first in that. Uh, when, there, when there's a problem to be approached in our marriage or in our kids or in our finances or whatever, I want to be the one who first comes to the table saying, hey, here's what I see on the horizon. Now, Courtney does that all the time too. But, but it's my role. I am ultimately responsible, and I want to be first to ask for forgiveness. I want to be first to see the things ahead and help us in unity to go towards them. And last is loving starts with listening. I need to know who Courtney is, how she functions, what is loving and caring towards her, and die and do those things that she would flourish. Courtney, you want to hear, share some of your practicals? Yeah, so I was trying to think through um, what submission or what it looks like that I submit to my husband. How does that play out in our home? How do I do that practically? What things could I say? And as I thought about it, I thought it kind of fell into three areas, that I think I need to know myself, I need to know my husband, and I need to know my season. I know myself, my husband, and my season. And so what it looked like for me to know myself, I think I need to know how I'm built, how I'm gifted, how I'm wired, who am I, because I'm supposed to leverage all that I am for the, all that I am for the flourishing of my husband. So I think it helps that I know who I am. But I think even deeper than that, I need to know who I am in Christ, right? That I need to be walking and growing as a daughter of Jesus before my role as a wife. Because I think what often gets me into trouble as I seek to find for Matt what only God can give me. That I try to find my identity or my worth or my purpose as a mom or a wife, that I wanna get affirmation from Matt that, you know, who I am and I'm doing a good job. And sure, that's great, and he's gonna tell me some of those things, but ultimately, I need to find my love and worth in Jesus. And so I need to start there, that I need to know who I am in him and I need to be growing in my intimacy with the Lord, that I'd be growing there. Because when that falls apart, everything crumbles and (laughs) things fall apart really quickly. Um, I think I need to know my husband. I need to know what he needs most from me. What is going to fill his tank? How can I support and encourage him? What does that look like emotionally, physically, spiritually? And so I need to ask him. I think a lot in our marriage, it has felt like he needs to feel like he's my top priority, that I care about him, that I'm thinking about him. And so I need to ask him, are you feeling like my top priority? And I need to be ready to hear the answer, because sometimes it's no. Sometimes he feels like the kids are the most important thing and I'm running them here and there and he's not feeling like my top priority. And so I need to be willing to hear that and be willing to discuss and think through what that looks like for him to feel that way. Mm-hmm. Really practically, even in right, just right now, in our marriage, vulnerably and transparently, is I'm sort of task-driven and pretty black and white and Matt's a little more of the emotional one in our marriage. Okay, I'm, I'm like super sensitive. <laughs> I love poetry. You know, that's, that's right. just kind of who I am and how I'm built. Anyway, so what I'm learning, it's taken me a long time. We've been married almost 20 years. I'm strong, too. I mean, I'm strong, too. (laughs) But I'm learning that texts go a long way. He wants me to just text him and let him know I'm thinking about him, that I love him. He'll text me these really long texts, like, I love you so much, all these things. And I'm like, okay, great, and just go about my day. Sometimes she doesn't even respond. And I'm like, like, even a little heart emoji, that's all I need. Did you get that? I'm like, yeah, I got it. It was was sweet. (laughs) Anyway. So I'm learning to know my husband well. He wants me to, like, I need to engage emotionally. I need to be growing in that, right? I want to serve him and love him and care for him. That is something I can do. So I need to know my husband. And then the last one is to know um, my season. And there's lots of things I could say about this, knowing the season, where your ages of your kids or what's going on that way circumstantially. 
But the thing I wanted to say about season is some seasons, submitting or loving come really naturally. It's almost like you're firing all cylinders, right? Like you're feeling cared for and respected and I'm able to care and respect him and support him and it just feels like everything's going great. And in those seasons, it's pretty easy. But there's gonna be seasons when it's not and it's really hard, right? There's conflict, you're fighting, you're not seeing eye to eye about how to handle the kids or what to do or how to spend money and he's offended you, or you're feeling misunderstood and mistreated. And in those circumstances- That never happens. Never happens. But in those circumstances, and I tend to want to retaliate and retreat and put walls up and feel guarded. And so then I'm not pursuing oneness and we're not seeking the Lord together. I kind of just get closed off. And in those seasons, I need to remember that my call to put on that gospel clothes to be able to submit to him has nothing to do with him. Right, we've talked about this, right? He didn't earn it, he doesn't deserve it. I do it because I love and follow and obey Jesus first. So I wanna pursue oneness because of my allegiance and devotion to Jesus. And so things that have helped is for me to continue my walk with Jesus, right? To continue to grow and pray. I need accountability with that, like friends that I can go to, that I can rant and share how I'm really feeling or how I'm frustrated, but that aren't just gonna listen, but are gonna point me to Jesus and ask me the hard question, right? Are you still pursuing your husband? Well, how do you think he feels? Like those kind of hard questions that I don't wanna wrestle with, but I need to. And so that we need community and accountability to do that. It's good. So what we're trying to paint here is that uh, the heart of a healthy family, and now Paul's going to go into parents and children, uh, the heart of a healthy family is a healthy marriage, right? And so uh, Courtney was talking about this as we uh, talked through it. Uh, a key principle we've found that leads to flourishing in our marriage is this. I need to find in Christ what I want from her. I might want intimacy or validation from her. I need to find that in Christ and then I need to give what I've gotten from Christ to her. So I need to find in Jesus what I want from her and, and then give to her what I found from him. And that is the core of our marriage. But then how does uh, this flow out then in the way we parent our kids? And we're going to fly through these, yes. by the way. Okay, so. so third command, this third short statement is verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. So I love that Paul is specifically addressing children. That assumes that kids were in the room at the reading of this church in Colossae, right? Kids were there. They weren't just pushed off somewhere. That you're never too young or early to be discipled and to learn the word of God. That back in Deuteronomy 31, verse, um, verses 9 to 13, Moses is saying to assemble all the people. And then he says, men, women, and children, so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord. So children here in this context, it is any child still living in the home under parental guidance. They're still being provided for by their parents. So this is little kids, teenagers, right? If you're still living at home. So I wanna speak to the kids in the room, the teens, the people that are here. I wanna speak to you because this command That's is you, for you. That's you, back row. That's right, those teens in the back. This is for you, I wanna speak to you. So your command is to obey your parents in everything. So if we were probably sitting in a circle, I might say, let's play the word association game, right? When you hear the word obey, what first comes to your mind, what would you say? So you might say, oh, it just means compliance, or I have to be a puppet, or do whatever they say, or it's a completed action, right? They say, go make my bed, so I better go make my bed, or I have to clean my room, right? And there is a piece of that. There is like a task that needs to get done. There's like an outward expression part to obedience. But the definition of obedience means to be like um, an excited listener, 
That's, it has the idea of listening, right? So it, obedience is really more of a heart posture or an attitude um, that recognizes that you're not the boss. In our house, our mantra is, we ask a question. We say, who's the boss? And the right answer is, God is the boss, right? He's the ultimate authority in our lives. And the kids say, I'm not the boss, right? God's the boss, I'm not the boss. That's what we say in our house. That he loves us and he's our ultimate authority and that we, God has given parents the unique role to teach our kids what it looks like how to obey and follow Jesus. And so we're not perfect as parents, but that is our job to help train our kids to learn how to ultimately follow and obey God. So just like the commands we've studied so far for wives to submit and husbands to love kids, your command to obey is not something that you do naturally, right? You didn't cheerfully wake up to, or graciously want to yield to your parents. You didn't think this morning, how can I obey my parents today, right? This is something not natural. But Colossians 3, 3 is true of you also. Your life is hidden with Christ. Your identity is his if you are trusting in Jesus. And so because you have been called a son and daughter of God, you are learning to grow in what it looks like to follow Christ. So you can put on the gospel clothes of obeying your parents because you love and submit to Jesus. So parents, I want to speak to you a little bit about what that looks like to teach and train our kids to obey. Obedience is a progression or a process, right? The end goal or the bullseye really has nothing to do with us at all. We want to help our kids grow up that they would just learn and trust and obey and walk with the Lord. That's the goal. That's the bullseye, right? So every kid that God has given to us, we have six amazing, beautiful, wonderful children, but each one that God has placed in our home None of, all of them have come hardwired to think they're in charge, right? They think they're the boss because scripture is clear. We are all sinners, right? That is sin, thinking I know the best way. Like I'm a sinner, we're all sinners. And all of each of our kids, they are also sinners. And so we have decided that we're gonna teach early in our home that our home is not a kid-centered home. And our, kid, our home is not a parent-centered home. Our home is a Christ-centered home, and we want to follow Jesus together. So the obedience progression might look something like this. Because obedience is such a foreign concept, right, because we're all sinners, we say when kids are really small, right, birth through toddlers, right, when toddlers, right, they don't want to go to bed when you say go to bed, they don't want to eat their vegetables, they don't want to share their toys, they don't want to, like, right, toddlers is a hard stage, right, so we say, parents, you need to be like a commander, right? You're stepping in, you're leading out. What does that look like to obey? There's a lot of instruction, right? You're a commander. But then as as they age, as they develop, as they mature, and as they grow spiritually, we get the job of like working ourselves out of a job, right? We get to release our kids. So we start as commander, and then we become more like a teacher, right? So as they're in elementary school, as they're growing, you're coming alongside and teaching what it looks like to follow God, but you're like a teacher, And then you move into like a coach role, right? You're a coach. Maybe when they're in high school, you're backing off even more. You come alongside. You get to step in when needed, but you're more of a coach. And then even less, you become a counselor. Maybe that's when they're in college. I don't know. It kind of depends per kid and where they're at developmentally, right? But you're more of a counselor as you continue to just step back even more. And then the goal ultimately would be, right, we're just friends, right? They're following Jesus. We're trying to follow Jesus, and we get to do that together. 
And that's the goal, right? One day, we'll just be together, being friends, following Jesus together. But it's important to not rush the progression, right? Don't rush it. I know a lot of us here, a lot of you all have really itty-bitty kids. And sometimes we just want to rush to the friend stage, right? Like, it's hard to raise toddlers. But don't rush it. Press in and live out the role that God has placed you in right now. Trust me, it's easier to disciple and discipline your three-year-old when they're three than when they're 13, right? It's a lot harder. Invest when they're small. It's worth it. That's good. Then Paul turns his uh, direction towards fathers or parents. This can actually be translated, uh, parents do not provoke your children. In Hebrews 11, uh, verse 23, that's exactly how this very word is translated. Uh, when Moses' parents uh, put him in the river and protect him, uh, the parents do so. It's the same word here. And, and I think Paul is a- aiming at parents here of how to not provoke and uh, uh, live in a way that their children would become discouraged. Uh, so uh, there are plenty of ways to provoke. The idea of provoking uh, is this idea of inciting or creating an us-versus-them relationship where we would live in a way where they feel against us and we feel against them. And, and you might say, well, how do I know if I'm doing that? Uh, look at the result here. Uh, parents, when we are provoking, our kids would become discouraged. If your kids are very discouraged, uh, you might be provoking them. Not always. Now, kids, uh, kids are quite an ordeal, so sometimes they're really discouraged when we're just doing a great job parenting. But if we see this as a situation, sometimes it's a red flag that we are provoking our children, living in us-versus-them kind of way. Uh, here are three ways I, I, I use to kind of temperature gauge our own relationship with our kids, uh, where I would say, am I provoking or leading to discouragement in their lives? Uh, the first is this. The amount of correction is not equal to the amount of relationship. The amount of my correction in their lives is not equal to the amount of relationship I have with them. I don't have that relationship with them. I've been either so distant or so uh, putting them away from me or I've been so critical in my life that, that these two are not equaling each other. The amount of correction is not equaling the amount of relationship. I might find myself uh, provoking and discouraging my kids. If I don't hang out with them when I'm not critiquing or correcting them, if I don't spend time with them in a loving kind of way. Uh, the second is this. The amount of encouragement is less than or equal to the amount of correction. The amount of encouragement I'm giving them in their lives is less than or equal to the amount of correction I'm giving. Um, maybe you've had a boss and, and he or she is really good at critiquing or telling you what you need to do different or better, but, but what you need to hear is four or five encouraging statements before you hear one critiquing statement. Now that critique might be true, it might be right, it might be something for us to work on, but the amount of encouragement must far surpass, it cannot be less than or equal to the amount of correction. And the last is this, maybe the message your kid is receiving from you is, I'm disappointed with you, and that is coming out louder than, I love you and I'm proud of you. That will lead to discouragement and provoke our children. If, if they hear louder and clearer, I'm disappointed with you, more than they're hearing, I love you and I'm proud of you. 
Uh, let's get into the practicals and we will close this out together. Uh, the first practical is simple. The core of your family, as we've said this, is a healthy marriage centered on Christ. That's the core of our family. That creates the environment, uh, uh, the fertile soil for our children to flourish. Now, Courtney's a master at this, so she's going to share quickly five M's. She's going to share these quickly five M's. That's right. I got the hint. I'm going to be quick. Okay. <laughs> so, the, as we thought about proactive discipleship in our home, there's five M's. It just makes it easy to remember. So, we try to use meals, moments, milestones, memories, and then modeling. Those are the five M's as we thought about this. So, meals, we all have to eat right? So we try to eat together as a family. Sometimes it's at like 9 p.m. at night by the time everyone's home. But it's a chance we get to share highs and lows and practice answering questions and listening. And it usually doesn't work and there's lots of fighting and food flying everywhere. But we try. We're just in the process of trying. So we try to use meals. Uh, moments. The most key thing for meals is that you actually aim to have a family meal together in the evenings. You know, sometimes mornings we can hit it, but it's aiming for those evenings. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Moments are just those teachable moments, right? When you're dropping them off for piano at 5 o'clock, you're in the car together. Take an opportunity to listen to what they're saying. How was school? What's going on in their context? Be able to speak into that. Part of that means when, you know, your two daughters are tearing each other apart and you have to step into that and talk about who are we? How do we want to love each other and care for each other? Like, take those moments and step in and share gospel truth and teach the truth in those moments. Um, milestones, uh, we try to make a big deal of birthdays, significant birthdays, especially around like 13 when they're kind of becoming teenagers and going into some of those years, uh, eight graduations, baptisms, when they get their driver's license, trying to make these milestones really significant. We teach each of our kids around middle school, 12 or 13, on a passport to purity weekend where we spend some time with them and just talk about it, what it looks like to become a man or a woman and have some special time with them. I take the girls, Matt takes the boys. Um, so those are milestones. And then memories are just those things that we're committed to, to have like special time, right? So we try to go on vacation as a family and you know walk to ice cream every time. Or we try to make um, certain holidays really special. So Advent, we have special memories that we do. We decorate the tree a certain time and make cookie, like all like just special memories we try to make a big deal of those. And then the last one really is modeling, right? That it has to start with us. Deuteronomy 6, you know, that passage about um, how we want to like pass on or impress the commands of God on our kids. It starts with us first, right? We have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then impress them on your children. Mm -hmm. And so my sister-in-law in her kitchen, she has this sign that you can't lead someone where you haven't been yourself, or something like that, right? That idea that like kids can sniff out a hypocrite better than anybody else. That if I'm not actively pursuing Jesus, following him, I can't pass that on to my kids. So I need to first be doing that, living that out. And then I can, you know, obviously pass that on to my kids because it's just an overflow of what's going on mm. in my own life. So those are the five ends. That's good. So you might be in one spot where you, you could be thinking right now, oh, what a failure I am. I'm not even married yet, or I don't have the kid I want, or I treat my spouse this way, or I, I can't believe that I'm not good enough in these areas. And I want to say this morning, you have a Father in heaven who loves you so deeply. And he's given you a son that you could have a relationship with him, and his grace would cover and transform you. 
Or you might be thinking this morning, oh, man, I'm kind of crushing this, or now I've got a blueprint to go forward. And I'm going to get this thing done. If I just do this, my kids will improve or get better or be better. Or my marriage will be amazing. And you might do all the right things, and it might go terribly. And you still have a Father who loves you in heaven. His grace is poured out, and he carries you and will carry you through that too. And what's amazing, too, is our kids have that same Father in heaven. Might he chase them down by grace, make them his own, that they would enjoy relationship with their Father who loves them so deeply. So what we're going to do right now is, uh, if you're married, would you come together in communion and pray for one another as you take communion? Uh, If you're single, would you pray for those who are married as you also talk to your Father in heaven and are reminded of his great love for you? Married couples, after you have finished praying for one another, taking communion, would you pray for our singles in our church? And then would all of us pray for the kids that we would raise them to know and love the Lord, that he might be their father, and they would enjoy that grace of relationship with him. So let's spend a minute or two now praying, talking with our father and praying with our spouse if he or she is present and taking communion with one another, then praying for singles, praying for marriages, and praying for kids. Let's take some time to come to our father together.